It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, December 27th, 2017, and you're listening to God and Comics, the last remaining place on the internet that still accepts Bitcoin. On today's show, Origin Stories. We talk about where our favorite heroes come from and why those stories are so fascinating. Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Jonathan Michikin. I am assistant chaplain at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory in Katy, Texas. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Schenectady in New York. And unfortunately, Father Kyle could not be with us this evening. He is on assignment. You can't hear me winking, but I'm winking. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and jump right into our recommendation at this point. And uh, Father Matt, why don't you take it away? I'd like to recommend the new book called The Wild Storm. It's a reboot of the Wild Storm universe. Now, it probably deserves some explanation. You know, way back when Image Comics first started, one of the original founders of Image was Jim Lee. And Jim Lee's contribution to Image Comics was his own imprint called Wildstorm. And it was named after the two kind of flagship titles of that imprint, Wildcats and Stormwatch. It was heavily indebted to Jim Lee's run on the X-Men. It was sort of the prototypical uh, example of 90s excess in, in superhero storytelling. Really kind of spectacular art, but like, you know, lots of long-legged female, well-endowed superheroes and lasers and, you know, all, all, all that kind of stuff that you associate with the 90s, shoulder pads, all that. And it, it wasn't a great story. It wasn't a great story. But what, what he ended up doing well is he hired some very talented writers to work in his imprint, one of which was Warren Ellis. And Warren Ellis kind of made his name working at Wildstorm, uh, writing, you know, a lot of great books there. And so he's, he's in charge of this new reboot. Wildstorm was uh, subsumed by DC Comics, and now they're bringing back the characters. But, oh my gosh... If, if, if you're going from Jim Lee's The Wildcats to Warren Ellis's Wildstorm in 2017, it's unrecognizable. This is only by an extreme stretch even called a superhero book. It's not a superhero book. It's a science fiction espionage military corporate drama. I, I don't know. It, it's quite the opposite of the excess of, of the 90s Wildcats. It's it's done in a very kind of naturalistic style with art by John Davis Hunt. Very detailed, very naturalistic. And the whole kind of tone of the book is very understated. It's kind of a slow burn, although when action does happen, it's exciting. It's a compelling story. But there's this sort of banality to it. There's like people having coffee, there's a lot of dialogue, and, and the characters are very vividly rendered. But underneath this banality, this sort of very realistic picture of every day, 
there are these incredible things going on. There are these two organizations that basically control the whole world. And it's happening right under our noses, and we don't even know it. The IO controls everything that happens on Earth, and then the Stormwatch controls everything in space. There are aliens among us, and we don't even know it. In fact, they've been here since the dawn of time, right? <laughs> or the beginning of life on Earth, um, and we don't know it. And, and there's this corporation Halo, which is sort of like, you know, um, Apple, uh, and, uh, and, and, and they're a part of this whole drama that's happening behind the scenes. The story kind of starts with this scientist, Angela Spica, I think her name is, and she, you know, kind of steals this alien technology and makes sort of like a metahuman skeleton that like hides inside of her body, but it's, it's hurting her, it's killing her. And it comes out kind of unexpectedly when she witnesses a man being thrown through a window, the CEO or, or inventor of this Halo company, she rescues him. And then she's drawn into this world that is going on behind the scenes that she had no idea about. It does have some of the classic characters, Voodoo, Zealot, Drifter, all those kind of guys, that you, characters that you know from the Wildcats. But it's, it's a slow-building story that it's it just really well done. Excellent writing, uh, spectacular artwork. I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm hooked. The first trade just came out. Um, I think there are about nine issues in now. The trade collects the first six. So do get in on the ground floor with this book because it's, it's really fantastic. It's called The Wild Storm by Warren Ellis and John Davis Hunt. All right. Well, friends, we're about to have, a, a as, as longtime listeners to the show know, a special word from our sponsor at this point. And I'm very excited to say we have a very special guest with us this evening uh, to to share with us uh, some information about our sponsor from the Living Church. Our very special guest, Bob Dylan. Uh, believe it or not, Bob Dylan has joined the podcast this evening. Hello, Bob. Welcome. Uh, hello. God in Comics is proud to be sponsored by the Living Church for over 139 years. The Living Church Magazine has been providing news, commentary, and analysis to members of the Episcopal Church. Today, TLC continues that mission and also provides theological reflection on books, music, art, and even popular culture through the magazine and through the Covenant blog. And TLC isn't just for Episcopalians. TLC covers the whole, the Anglican communion and beyond. <laughs> Building relationships between communion-minded Christians of all straps and denominations. As Master Magazine says, TLC's goal is to be a truly Catholic, evangelical, ecumenical, be sure to go to thelivingchurch.org to find out more. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Bob Dylan. And uh, I, I would love to have asked Bob some questions, but he just disappeared that fast out of the studio. He's, uh, 
he's, he's, he's gone already. So the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Or as I used to think it said, the ants are my friends. They're blowing in the wind. So <laughs> there we are. Well, we're going to jump into our main conversation at this point. And uh, our topic this evening is origin stories. So I'm very excited to talk about that. And joining us to talk about this is our, our guest today is Alexi Sargent. Alexi is a regular guest. His writing has appeared in First Things, The Weekly Standard, and New Atlantis, among other places. Uh, he also has a number of other artistic pursuits that he's involved in. Maybe he'll tell us about some of them. I'm, I'm hoping he might tell us a little bit about this new game that he's been developing. Uh, welcome to the program, Alexi. Thanks. Great to be back. So um, before we dive too far in here, uh, the, the game you've been working on, uh, No Holds Barred. That's right. No Holds Barred is a Shakespearean fighting game. If you've ever imagined what it would be like to play Super Smash Brothers, but instead of Nintendo characters, they're Shakespeare characters, and instead of a video game, it's a board game, then No Holds Barred is the game for you. I've been developing it for a little while, hoping that I'll find a publisher or kickstart it soon, and uh, it's been a blast testing it with folks. I've brought it to several game conventions, and if you want to be on my mailing list to find out more about No Holds Barred and the other game I'm working on, which is a hidden agenda storytelling game called Enemy of the Revolution, you can sign up for either of those mailing lists at bit.ly slash Games. If it's like Smash Brothers, I assume I get to, like, punch Mercutio in the nose or something like that? Is that, like... Oh, absolutely. That's the idea. Hamlet okay. has the skull of Yorick, which he can use as a projectile attack. You can play as Beatrice for Much Ado About Nothing, who stuns people with her wit. You can play as the bear from The Winter's Tale who pursues people and then eats them because he's a bear. Nice. Well, that that, that all sounds very exciting. I look forward to, uh, to playing that at some point. And it's also uh, exciting today because I believe this is the first time that uh, Catholics have outnumbered Episcopalians on the podcast. So uh, I look forward to uh, forcing Father Matt to uh, submit to the Pope by the end of the program. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about let's talk a little bit about origin stories. And if you were going to pick a favorite origin story from comics, what would it be, and why? My favorite origin story is Spider-Man's. I think it has a simplicity that lends itself to the story of a young man really growing into heroism. Because, of course, what's most interesting, I'd say, about Spider-Man's story is his origin is very random, right? He's bitten by a radioactive spider that could have bit anyone. It's uh, not a spider that set out to bite Peter Parker. And I will fight anyone who claims that there was some kind of totemic magic going on there because those retcons they're best forgotten about. Uh, no, Spider-Man's origin is he's bitten by a spider, he gains these powers, and then at first, as a you know, young man struggling to figure out what to do with his powers, he makes bad choices, right? And then by the end of that first issue, his real origin comes when he learns that with great power comes great responsibility. So there's an elegance to the origin being a random occurrence, give someone superpowers, and then 
a lesson from a mentor, a lesson taught through loss, teaches him how to be a hero. And sometimes people try to kind of have the powers and the heroism have the same origin. And I think what's compelling about Spider-Man's origin is that those happen at separate times. That first he gets his powers, and then he gets the guidance he needs to really commit to using his powers to be a hero. Father Matt, I understand that Superman is one of your favorites. And, and actually, this is one of my favorites, too. So I want to see if, uh, if, if we're going to say the same thing about it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't know Superman's origin story? I mean, Superman's origin stories, uh, I mean, he's the prototype for all superheroes. So, I mean, you know, I, I've always loved the idea of, of Superman as sort of the stranger in a strange land. He's the last son of, of Krypton, a world that was destroyed when he was an infant. Even this this story of, of, of Krypton's destruction with Superman's father, Jor-El, being the voice in the wilderness crying out about this imminent destruction. I mean, there's all kinds of biblical and, and mythological uh, resonances there. But then, coming back to the idea of, of Superman as sort of the stranger who grew up on Earth. So he's simultaneously a stranger, but he's also very much a kid from from Kansas, Smallville, Kansas. So he has that kind of double side to his his, uh, identity. And and of course, it's Superman's origin from a a, a far-off world that gives him his miraculous powers. You know, Krypton was a world with a red sun, so his his body is fitted for that environment. And, And here, with the rays of the yellow sun, he has these tremendous superhuman abilities so superman's origin story has always been very compelling probably the one of the more well-known ones father matt do you have a favorite telling of superman's origin story i'm a huge fan of the john byrne uh man of steel retelling of superman's story one of the things that i loved about the way uh john byrne told the story is he made the kryptonians truly alien they no longer uh seemed very human in fact they were kind of frightening <laughs> the apparitions of his uh, kryptonian parents were very different than ma and pa Kent. and you think that emphasizes the way a lot of what superman is comes from his upbringing on, on earth even if his powers come from him being the last son of krypton yeah i i i think so i mean i, I think it emphasizes the fact that you know his origin is from a world that's very different than small town Kansas or, or even Metropolis. Right. I really like the minimalist uh, telling of Superman's origin that is the opening to uh, Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely's All Star Superman. I think people, oh, yeah. you know, if you're familiar with the with the um, book, you'll be able to imagine this page because it's a set of four panels with kind of terse captions that go doomed planet desperate scientists last hope kindly couple and then you flip the page and it's a full page you know splash of superman with the caption superman and it's nice because it's like a sort of simple list of ingredients that go into superman and it gives you a kind of evocative sense of the story without having to retell every moment 
of that origin that is familiar to everyone who's seen you know any piece of Superman media really. Yeah, I, the, he he could play off of that because it's just so much a part of you know our cultural consciousness. Even if you're not a comic book fan, uh, you could narrate the story of Superman. Yeah, that's I, I was just thinking like, what's my favorite Superman origin story? And I think the a lot of the ones that I I really like are are from the other mediums, you know, like the origin that's shown in the original Christopher Reeve uh, Superman film or, uh, you know, uh, I I mentioned this last time out, but uh, I've been slowly making my way through Smallville for the first time ever. So I'm in about season five of Smallville now. And that's kind of a fascinating uh, reworking of the of the whole thing. But, you know, one of the things that I and I, I, I put Superman right up at the top of my my list uh, as well in terms of origin stories. I mean, it's the sort of origin story that I mean, yeah, it's also the, it is the prototype, but it's also just really brilliantly done um, the way that everything uh, is kind of weaved together of this alien child in, in, in a, a new place, a new atmosphere. And I think about the contrast between the Superman origin story and the Batman origin story, which has been such a, a great source of connection with these figures over the years, uh, how Batman and Superman interact with each other, and how Superman, I was just thinking of this today, how Superman is so very shaped by the parents that he had, the adoptive parents that he had, right? I mean, if if Superman had been raised by somebody else, you know, who knows what kind of a character he he would turn out to be. But so much of what makes him who he is is Jonathan and Martha Kent. And at the same time, Batman has this incredibly iconic root in in uh, the death of his parents and what makes him who he is. Is almost it's the it's also his parents, but it's the absence of them instead of the the presence of them, um, which which makes for an interesting contrast. Plus, as Father Matt pointed out in our our Justice League episode, the fact that their mother's names uh, was Martha is clearly enough for Batman not to want to continue to beat uh, the living stuffing out of <laughs> Superman. Um, uh, I, I think <laughs> I think the choice to make the coincidental fact their mother's names were the same this like huge plot point in the dc cinematic universe was a a real a real bad choice i think (laughs) undercut what actually is interesting about the relationship between those characters for the sake of a a kind of cheap cheap moment how Um, how dare you how dare you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'll tell you one thing i do like that was uh recently published to do with the contrast between Batman and Superman's origin. It's uh, in Tom King's current run on Batman. He uh, had a a sequence where Batman and Superman are talking about each other's origin. Um, uh, Superman is kind of narrating to Lois Lane Batman's uh, past, and Batman is explaining to Catwoman Superman's, and it's presented in kind of parallel columns of of panels as they're each explaining the other as they see them and it's fascinating because what batman and superman end up saying right after discussing the the formative trauma and the 
powers or lack thereof that their counterpart has, Batman says, you know, every kid is inspired by him. He's a better man than I am about Superman. And Superman says, everyone wants to be him. He's just a better man than I am about Batman. And they kind of each, you know, looking at these others, the other's origin say, you know, oh, they chose to be a hero. They didn't have to be a hero. Whereas I had to be a hero. I had no choice. And there's a, a humility there and also an interesting disconnect where they don't fully understand each other even though they admire each other. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, that's where you can mine real drama from the Batman and Superman relationship. So I think going to the well of each of them had a mom named Martha is cheap. <laughs> Well, this this does uh, highlight one of the questions I was hoping we would explore a little bit tonight and um, and see what you guys have thoughts about uh, because I, I'm curious to know why it is that origin stories are so compelling or why it is you think that they're so compelling uh, because clearly they are. We always want to know, you know, if you just kind of get dropped into a story with with a character. Actually, really, with any kind of uh, character, but particularly with a, a character with some sort of extraordinary gifts, it's always like the thing on on everybody's mind is when are they going to reveal where this person came from and why they are the way they are? And it's compelling in I mean, it's compelling in real life, right? I mean, we you know people love to hear the the origin stories of sports figures and. Uh, of uh, great world leaders, and it's something that politicians sometimes uh, are are able to, uh, you know, to really kind of put to good use, right? Like, think about um, when Bill Clinton was running for for president the first time, talking about the man from hope, you know, or uh, um, I'm sure there are dozens of other examples in, in politics as well. So why do we want to hear origin stories? So to push against the premise a tiny bit, you know, I think origin stories are endlessly fascinating, but sometimes not as explanatory as we want them to be, right? I think I think part of the tendency you're noticing, Jonathan, in people's desire to hear origin stories is a desire to hear an explanation, a desire to hear what accounts for who this person became. And at least in the best stories, the ones I like the most, uh, the origin story itself isn't a sort of exhaustive account of that, right? That kind of character development doesn't come down to simply that one day where everything changed, but there's a journey that is longer than what can fit in a simple origin story. And I think this is true for, for real people, and I think this is true for fictional characters that are kind of drawn with care and attention to the development of character. So that's my kind of problematizing the the premise uh, of you know how, how much exactly can origin stories explain i i think it's interesting that yeah origin stories are meant to explain something but as alexis says uh, you know they're not they're never quite ex- as exhaustive as people would like them to be which i think is one of the reasons why whenever we're telling superhero stories we we continually circle back around to re-explore the origin story. Like we were saying, how many times has Superman's origin story been told? Wasn't it different every time it was told? Some other aspect was, was brought out about it. Origin stories are retconned. Explain, you know? explain retcon if there's anyone listening who doesn't know what retcon means. Well, the, the term retcon, I guess it's, what does it mean? Like reconfiguring, like going back after the fact 
and, and changing changing details uh, about short about for the... retroactive continuity, and so it refers to times when later writers will go back and try to change details of a previous story. So, you know, in some ways, every retelling of an origin is a retcon, but I think it's most often used when someone retells an origin in a way that is premised on everything you thought you knew was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the, like one of the most egregious examples is in the Amazing Spider-Man films, the way they kept teasing this idea that it wasn't just a genetically modified spider that gave Spider-Man his powers. You know, his his dad was doing some kind of experiment, and there's some Parker legacy related to the spider powers. And I think you know this is a common temptation with retcons to make something that was once an accident the product of a grand design mm-hmm. because that's a cool reveal to like you pull the curtain back and there's a grand design but there's only so many times you can do that before it it loses any impact and in fact kind of undercuts what was interesting about a regular person happening to gain superpowers which is i think the essence of the spider-man story or, or i think of something yeah. like uh something like the wonder woman story which in the dc comic universe and i guess I guess this is true in the movie universe as well, has been retconned now. You know, the original story was that she was basically made of clay and that yeah, life was life. breathed into her by the gods. And, and at various points, that's been more specific, you know, Athena and, and, and certain other goddesses being involved in the bringing of, of Diana to life. Yeah, Brian Azzarello is the one who changed that. So now it's, uh, well, you know, that was the story that we told you, Diana, but really your mom was uh, shacking up with Zeus. And uh, that that's where you come from. And it's interesting that people, you know, there, there are some people who really don't like that shift. And there, there are some people who think it's fine. But it's interesting that you can get away with that in the Wonder Woman story in a way that you'd never be able to get away. Like if they just like if some writer just came in and was like, Batman's parents are fine. They <laughs> they live in a retirement community in Hoboken, you know? Yeah, they, like you'd they, never they be able to do that. Nice farm upstate. Right. But but for some reason like Wonder Woman's it's easier to it's easier to deal with because even though her origins as an Amazon are important the sort of mechanics of how she got her powers are, are not as important to her story, at least in terms of how people seem to respond to it. So, so I mean, for better or for worse, when writers go back and retcon or, or rewrite origin stories, they're trying to say new things about the character because by exploring that beginning, you, you start to understand their motivations, who they are, what made them the person they are today. You know, or, or, or you can pull the rug out from, from a character like, like Wonder Woman. Like, you know, you, everything you thought you knew about who you were is a lie. The origin story, um, it, it's not just about who the characters were, but it's, it really is about who they are. Yeah. Because... The child is the father of the man, as they say. We are our, our, our past experiences. All of that contributes to, to who we are. I think this touches on the paradox of origin stories in that they're really meant to be a story that allows you to tell other stories. But because they're treated as so defining, right, and because there's this desire to 
retell or retcon them. They end up being the story that doesn't let you tell any other stories. If what you do is endlessly retell and renegotiate that origin. For several years, we had a Spider-Man origin on the big screen every couple years because they they just had to keep redoing Spider-Man. And as you can maybe tell from my tone, I think that it's better to sometimes like let an origin story just be that, just be that starting point and not need to be endlessly revisited. But I do, I do understand why they, they come to be this kind of totemic thing that, that can never go away and that has to be, has to be told and retold because that is how, you know, all mythologies work, right? And um, comic books have a lot in common with older forms of mythology. Well, there's something, there's something almost Freudian about it, isn't there? Because we think if, if I know what this person's experience as a child was or, or something like that, I will understand them better, which is, is not necessarily untrue. I mean, that, that, that can often tell you a whole lot. You know, you meet somebody's parents and you go, ah, now I get you on a, in a whole different way. But it, is, uh, it does sometimes become a little overblown, like we think we can understand everything about somebody if we, if we know their origin, which isn't, isn't necessarily true. Yeah. Well, Father Matt, Jonathan, you have more theological background than I do, but tell me, so tell me if I'm off base when I say here that what we're talking about, about superheroes and their origins, you know, could be in a way applied to the origins of, of man. Because uh, we have the Genesis story, the Garden of Eden, as an origin story for humankind, but then the good news of Jesus and the gospel is a retcon of that. Right. That, that, <laughs> exactly. Well, that, that or, the order has changed, right? You know, man's fall is no longer the defining event because in Christ's coming, you know, man has this chance at redemption. And even parts of what seemed to be a curse in Genesis when Christ was, uh, when uh, God was speaking to Eve and the serpent and talking about putting enmity between the seed of woman and the serpent that would seem to be just part of this curse turns out to be the promise of the coming of the savior. So we can mm. see a kind of divine retcon of sorts, you know, they had the apple taken been Mary, never been the heavenly queen. <laughs> there, there's there, uh, that's me trying to remember the line of, uh, a, a famous, uh, song that gets sung this time of year. Um, Adam lay bound it. Mm. that, that kind of um, looks back on the Eden story in light of, of the Christmas story and pronounces the fall of man a felix culpa, a, a happy fault, you know, because it brought about such so great a redeemer. Whenever we're, we're talking theologically, right, I, I, I don't know, we're always going back to creation and the fall. You know, it, that origin story, as it were, says so much about who we are, why we exist, what our purpose is, why Christ came into the world. You know, if, if you were to remove the, the creation account from Genesis, the Christian story would lose so much of its integrity. That story is such a, a foundational part of the story of redemption. But then there are, there are also these Major, like we, we did a podcast, I think last season on conversion, 
and when you proposed the the topic of origin stories, I thought, didn't we do that? And I remember, oh, that was conversion stories, because so much of the origin story is also kind of like a conversion experience as well. It's it's this defining moment, this moment of where the hero comes face to face with his true purpose or her true purpose, her destiny. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, conversion stories that function as a kind of rebirth story, right? A, a new origin story. That's the turn. It could equally be true of a, a villain. Here we are. When this episode airs, we will be firmly in the Christmas season because, yes, friends, Christmas doesn't stop on December 25th. Amen. And uh, so there, you might say, is is kind of the ultimate hero origin story, <laughs> right? Uh, the incarnation itself, God coming into the world in this incredible way uh, as as a baby. But you know what I what I was thinking about is now this this a lot of this depends on on how much you buy into modern biblical criticism, which uh, take, take that however you will. But most scholars, unless something major has changed that I'm unaware of, uh, usually point to Mark as being the gospel that was most likely to be written first. Might not be the case, but that, that seems to be a lot of the scholarly consensus. And what's interesting, if that is true, is there you have a story that completely bypasses the origin that we celebrate. I mean, it doesn't bypass the uh, incarnation by any stretch, but there's no, you know, there's no manger, there's no baby, right? It just jumps in uh, with the baptism in the, in the River Jordan. It um, opens in medias res, like yeah, a Greek epic. Right. And so you, you can sort of imagine people hearing that story and going, yeah, but we want to know <laughs> where. What's tell us a little bit more? Um, yeah. You know, and where did this Jesus come from? Right, and sort of seeing that coming well, out in the like other gospels. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you know, and you don't even really get very much of that, of course, um, right. in, in any of the gospels. The Nazareth are kind of hidden, right? There's no, there's been no Smallville. Uh, <laughs> Well, for Jesus growing up and, in his Anne Rice tried to do that a couple of years ago, but I don't think it worked very well. No canonical Smallville <laughs> for Jesus. Yeah, I, and, and, and Smallville's non-canonical, too. You know, that's... The pretty, oh, yeah. In Superman territory, that's like the infancy gospel of Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> would it, so would it be fair to say that Luke... Right, going back to, to give us the more fleshed out story of, of the nativity that is kind of like going back to offer the origin story of a, a person, right, in this case Christ, who's, who's already become widely known before, his, before his, his origin, you know, his birth is part of the, the biography that, that has been passed around. Is that, would that be fair to say that kind of Luke in this case is the one going back to, to tell that origin story? I, I think that's fair, particularly because Luke does does it in such a historical way. Well, Matthew and Luke really both do with the genealogies. But you know, really, the one who really does it, thinking about what we've been putting together here, is John, who, of course, doesn't give us an infancy or a birth narrative, at least in part because he's probably assuming that we've heard them already. But he gives us the context of, of Genesis again, right? In the beginning... Right. 
is how he starts. And the beginning was the word, only he takes it back even farther. He says, you know, the origin here is even deeper than you imagined it was. Eternally begotten of the Father. I know he goes all the way back before time. He rewinds it all the way. (laughs) Right. Before time being a concept that will make your head explode if you try to think about it long enough. But I I feel chagrined (laughs) because I feel like this is the move I critiqued when it was about Spider-Man. But I guess maybe it's it's more appropriate for Jesus than for Spider-Man. Well... This is this is, and I don't think that the uh, the people well, who retcon Spider Man were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, well, I guess well, that well, is a crucial distinction. <laughs> I, I, know, I know I'm the only Episcopalian here now, but but what does the 39 article say about? Uh, it's not for us to probe back into the hidden purposes of God. <laughs> you, know, you know, is there some sort of larger purpose? why Peter Parker was bitten by that spider. You know, did his creators not have a purpose for that? Yeah, of course they did. But, like, don't spoil the mystery entirely. Don't spoil the fun by shining too bright a light on every single aspect of it and and, and, and removing the surprise, removing the mystery from it. Do you think that there's some aspect of our desire or I don't know if it's our desire so much as the the tendency of writers to always want to kind of work back into the origin, some new layer of mystery that connects this with everything else. I mean, do you think there is some like hidden search for God in that, even in stories that have nothing to do with him? Like, you know, okay, well, originally this this wasn't connected to that but now we're going to see it connected to that because if you think about it like all the whole idea that our lives are narrative is in and of itself a uniquely human uh, characteristic and i think one of the things that connects us i think personally one of the things that connects us with being made in the image and likeness of god is that we can see ourselves we can see this sort of narrative pattern that exists in life, um, yeah. that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, right? Like, why would your li- your life? You know, uh, there have certainly been philosophers who would look at that and go, "Your life isn't a story. Why do you think your life is a story? This is just a series of meaningless events that you happen to be uh, you happen to be in." Or even the you know the the philosopher who would say, "Well, how do you know that when you fall asleep at night and you wake up in the morning, you're not a completely different person who's just been imbued with the same yeah. memory?" You know, like. <laughs> The whole concept of story has a certain divine quality to it. I think I agree that there's a desire for providence that undergirds this kind of origin story retconning into all part of a grand design. You know, I guess my my preference in fictional narrative is for the grand design to remain something I could interpret as being the work of actual providence, right? If we interpret that god intended for peter parker to be bitten by the spider that i'll take but i don't want i don't want it to involve morlin and all these <laughs> weird totem creatures that's the so so i so i like i like the idea that there's something you know in our kind of human being made in the image of god nature that compels us to want these stories to connect and as we tell stories over and over again build out a grand design of them i just think we need to be careful that we don't create something kind of disappointing that robs the original story of what was interesting in the process. I, I think a lot of these authors they just want a piece of these characters. They want to be 
one of the defining shapers of this character's identity. So if I could go back and add a new aspect to Spider-Man's character that's completely new, you know, I've contributed something original and, and groundbreaking to the character. Tim Keller talks about and he, I think he's actually playing with something that C.S. Lewis said, but he, he talks about the idea of, of like how would Shakespeare's characters, like how would Hamlet know Shakespeare? Like he wouldn't know Shakespeare, you know, even though Shakespeare's writing all the stuff that's happening to Hamlet, there, there's no way for him to know Shakespeare unless somehow Shakespeare inserts himself in the story. And so that's Keller's point, is that that's essentially what, what God has done with us, is the author who inserts himself in the story. Right, um, the incarnation is the divine breaking into history. Right. I think that's part of the imprint of why we like origin stories, is because there's a part of us that's searching for the hand of God. We're searching for the thing that, that we don't normally have access to, right? Because in your daily life... I mean, you know, you can talk, people talk about this. I mean, you can sort of look at your life and go, okay, I, can, I think I see God at work here. But like most of the time, minute to minute, hour to hour, you, you can't see how the pieces fit together. And I think we feel like if we go back to our origins, we might catch some glimpse of the original, you know, glue being put <laughs> or the original plan being laid and that that might give us some insight into where God is in our lives. There are stories, superhero origin stories, where the intention is much more upfront, where the character is sort of chosen. Green Lantern, you know, how Jordan's chosen, why? Because of his character, you know? He's chosen by the alien to be the next bearer of the uh, Green Lantern because, you know, he's brave and honest. Billy Batson's chosen by, by Shazam to be Captain Marvel. Because, he, he, you know, the kid had such a rough life and, and the wizard takes pity on his, how, how hard he's had it in life. One, one of the origin stories that is, you know, not in the canon of uh, well-known stories is Captain Britain. You guys ever hear Captain Britain's origin story? He's given a choice, right? So he, he's in this motorcycle accident and he meets Merlin and, and Merlin's daughter, Roma. And he's given a choice between the the sword of might, is it the sword of might and the amulet of, of right? And his his immortal soul hangs in the balance. How will he he choose? Well, he he he's a scholar and a scientist, so he says, "No, I'm the I'm the warrior." And he chooses the amulet of right, and that's the right choice. And he's Captain Britain because only because he chose that. Can he be trusted with that kind of power? You know, I, presumably if he would have chose the sword of might, he would have been swallowed up in, in hell or something like that. There are these characters that are, that there's this idea that there's this providence on them. That, you know, whoever it was, you know, the aliens, the wizard, the gods, looked down upon them and chose them, set them apart to be... Uh, a champion. There's that aspect of, of being chosen to a lot of characters, but I mean, even with the ones where that isn't explicit, like Batman and Spider-Man, you know, or Daredevil, 
it's almost like they have this destiny. And there's always this sense of destiny that overhangs every superhero. They needed to appear. This incredibly unlikely accident just occurred because, you know, it needed to happen. They have a destiny. Yeah, I mean, two things. That is you know, a biblical resonance, right, with a number of characters in the Bible, you know, Moses, Jonah, various prophets have this sense of being chosen, and then we see their reaction, right? Sometimes they make excuses, sometimes they run away, and you know, sometimes God has to like pursue them a little to get them to embrace the task they've been chosen and set aside for. But you also made me think of the scene where Batman is not yet Batman, but just Bruce Wayne, unsure of how to fight against crime, sitting in his mansion, and he says, you know, he asks his father for a sign, and that's when a bat crashes through the window. Yeah, right? It's just very providential. <laughs> I want to take this moment to apologize to our listeners who are going to be enjoying the sound of the dishwasher in my kitchen throughout this entire episode. Um... <laughs> I just realized has been gurgling and I didn't even I didn't even notice it until this moment. So um, <laughs> we have clean dishes at the Michigan house. You're welcome. Uh, well, there's certainly a lot more that we could say on this topic and uh, a lot of other comic book heroes that whose origin stories we could explore. What is your favorite comic book hero origin story? We'd love to find out. Why don't you be in touch with us through social media? We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash God and Comics. We are also on Twitter at God and Comics. We hope you'll interact with us there. But for now, we're going to move on to our final segment, This and Every Time Out, and that is This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Huh? Okay, so we uh, always said... I don't know why we've always said this, but we've always said that if we ever had a guest on three times, we would ask the guest to, to provide the this or that. And Alexi, you are in the unique position of now being the first guest we've ever had to do the podcast three times. I, I hope you've got some this or that for us. Oh boy, do I. Uh, I'm very honored <laughs> to get the chance to do this or that with you guys. Uh, I've created a little list here. And I think I want to start with Father Matt. Which one do you pick? The DCEU Aquaman, that's the live-action version, played by Jason Momoa, or the Batman the Brave and the Bold Aquaman, the animated <laughs> version from that series? Well, that's a good question. They're, they're both very different, aren't they? And they're both sort of different than Aquaman. <laughs> I get a kick out of the Aquaman and the Batman Brave and the Bold. They make him sort of uh, ridiculous and, and kind of over the top and, I don't know, arrogant almost. So I, I, I'm going to go with Batman Brave and the Bold and Aquaman o over the hard-drinking, hardcore, five-pointed trident Aquaman. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're both kind of arrogant, aren't they? But uh, I feel like if it was... Uh, the Snyder verse Aquaman and he saved me. I'd I'd have to buy him a drink. Uh, so I do I do hope we someday get a crossover with uh, Snyder verse Aquaman singing Aquaman's rousing song of heroism from Batman's Brave and Bold. <laughs> yes. All right. Here's a this 
looking back on the past liturgical season, uh, and it's for you, Jonathan, violet vestments for Advent or blue vestments for Advent? Violet vestments, uh, except for on the third Sunday in Advent when it should be rose. Oh, a good point. So this question's for anyone who wants to take it, because I'm not sure I'm not sure you know which of these any of you have seen, but I do want to get a this or that answer on Netflix's Iron Fist versus ABC's Inhumans. I haven't seen the Inhumans. Have you seen the Inhumans? I have not. I've I've now I've watched all of Iron Fist, and just based on that, I'm, I would probably go with Inhumans. <laughs> but I, I haven't I don't seen know. it. No, I, I heard Inhumans. Bad. Yeah, and 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 you know, like uh, Black Bolt didn't have a mask or uh, like a fork on his head, so like that's you just gotta get that tuning well, fork. Man. Iron Fist didn't have a mask either. Yeah, yeah, but I know. I mean, he had the dragon tattoo. True, he did have the dragon tattoo. Alexi, you're gonna yeah. have to tell us the right answer to this one. Oh, I haven't seen either. <laughs> Okay. Well, good. I've got uh, that inspired by my wife. I'll give this to to you, Father Matt. Uh, It's Muppet Christmas Carol or Muppet Treasure Island, both films that Leah has introduced me to. Well, you know, I I have only the vaguest memory of the Treasure Island film, but the Christmas Carol is always (laughs) good. And you know, with with Muppets, how could you go wrong? So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the Muppets Christmas Carol. I believe the correct answer is Muppets Take Manhattan. Mm. Yeah, pro- probably the best Muppets movie. Jonathan, Dante or Shakespeare? To, to be perfectly honest with you, I haven't actually sat down and read Dante, other than bits and pieces here and there for other things that I've been doing, but not to like sit there and read through. Uh, so I, I, I might feel differently if, and once I do, but it is hard to beat Shakespeare. <laughs> it is hard to beat Shakespeare. I mean, Dante is, is, is doing a different thing than Shakespeare is, but uh, just the sort of level of diversity and complexity and, the, the whole range of things that Shakespeare manages to do in, in the plays that he does is um, I, it's hard to, it's hard to even see who matches that even on a pure output level, not to compare them because they're not really the same at all. But I, it almost makes me think of like somebody like Chesterton who just seemed to like spit words out for breakfast that, <laughs> you know, like, let me do this whole different thing today, you know? Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Shakespeare. Well, I am a fan of Shakespeare and of Chesterton, uh, so I can't fault the choice. I think it was T. S. Eliot who said the world is divided between Dante and Shakespeare. There is no third. So I figured I should pose that as a this or that dichotomy. Uh, there is a graphic novel adaptation of Dante's Divine Comedy. If you ever want to approach it that way, uh, it's oh, yeah. Seymour Chwast. Father Matt, two all-ages series from Marvel Comics, this or that, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, or Ms. Marvel, starring mm. Kamala Khan. Ooh. Oh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say um, 
Ms. Marvel. Um, I I haven't I haven't read too much with the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. I checked it out a little bit, but um, Ms. Marvel. It took a while to grow on me, um, partly because I'm not sure I, I'm a big fan of the artist, but the character herself is is, is a really pretty compelling character, uh, and I like the fact that they took a chance on, on, on depicting um, a minority group that that's largely misunderstood and did did a, a great job of making her extremely likable and sympathetic and made you, uh, you know, as well as being an exciting superhero book, it's also a, a great glimpse into, you know, another group of people that are our neighbors in the United States. So uh, I, I really like Ms. Marvel book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. All right, very good. Both great the books. Marvel is fun as well if you want to check it out. Yeah, they're 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 both they're both great books. Uh, Jonathan, here is a very difficult list for that. The topic is burritos. Burritos. And okay. the this or that is sandwich or not a sandwich. I don't usually think of a burrito as a sandwich, but uh, I would not be mortally offended if somebody did call it a sandwich. I suppose I would say that I believe in the burrito's right to choose whether or not it wants to be a sandwich. <laughs> this is very diplomatic. I don't want to impose anything on the, the burrito's identity. Well, you have a different perspective than the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that burritos are not sandwiches. The U.S. Supreme Court? <laughs> Oh, uh, it, it excuse me, far. excuse me. It was it was a state court, not the Supreme Court. I, I misremembered. Okay, well, that doesn't actually explain it at all, but okay. Jonathan, here's a question. Superman's S, does it mean hope, or is it an S? <laughs> Which reading do you prefer? <laughs> um... <laughs> Speaking of retcons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think I'm bothered by the, by the retcon, but, I, you know, it, it's an S. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's, it's an, an S. S. <laughs> come on. An S that said it's for Superman. Yeah. Don't, don't need to complicate that. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly my, uh, my take. Father Matt, I've got <laughs> a last this or that for you, and it's one with three choices. But since it's seasonally appropriate, I hope you'll hope you'll entertain it. And the choices are gold, frankincense, or myrrh. Frankincense because it sounds like Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> but I was also, be a theological reason. Yeah, I thought you were going to say because you have incense and incense is awesome. Thought that's where. Yeah, you and I, that was going to be my second point, being the the rector of the. Uh, uh, of, of the infamous St. George's Schenectady. I'll have to go with the incense every time. Are you be, infamous for incense? It, we're, it, we're infamous for our, our high churchmanship. <laughs> well, I think no one should get incensed at that. Oh. No, no. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Although, you know, yeah, we, we were, we like to, to worship the Lord in a cloud of glory. Sunday, so those were my this or that's. Thanks for playing. Well, th thank you, Alexi. We we appreciate uh, you uh, coming up with that. I don't know what 
we'll do if you're on a fourth time. We'll have to um, invent Maybe some. Maybe get some recommendations. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting idea. All right. Sure, we could come up with something. We'll we'll think about that. Um, but at any rate, thank you also for being on the show uh, today. And uh, do you have anything else you want to plug? Uh, sure thing. Folks can find all my writing if they go to alexisargent.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-R-G-E-A-N-T.com. You can find their, the writing I've done at various places, including the Weekly Standard. And a recent piece I did for the New Atlantis might be of interest to Goblin's Comics listeners if you're interested in nerdy things more generally because I do an in-depth critique of the choice that the Star Wars films made to use CGI resurrection to bring back Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So if you want to read my in-depth thoughts about that and learn all of the very cool stories I found out about Peter Cushing while researching that piece, go to my website, alexisargent.com. There'll be links there to my writing all over the internet. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you all for listening as we uh, come to the end of yet another program. Just a quick note to listeners that this is our last episode of 2017. Uh, It's not the end of this season. We will have more episodes this season, but we are going to take a little bit of a break, uh, and we'll be back uh, towards the end of January, beginning of February with with new episodes. We hope everybody at home has a very Merry Christmas if you are uh, somebody who celebrates. Uh, and uh, a wonderful new year, and we'll see you in 2018. You can find out some more about the rad stuff we talked about today, including we'll have a link to uh, to Alexi's site, on the show page at godandcomics.com. And while you're there, you can give the show another listen if you like. We are also subscribable through iTunes. Uh, And while you're on iTunes, as always, we would love it if you were willing to give us a rating and or a review helps other people to find the program. It would be the perfect Christmas gift to give to your friends at God and Comics, a rating or a review. Well, I suppose it depends on what the rating is, if it's a gift or not. (laughs) But nevertheless, we hope that you will give us an honest rating and review. We'd love to have that. You guys have been nice this year, right? You deserve a good rating. That's right. That's correct. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this moment, is by Father Paul Wheatley, whose own amazing origin story revealed that he was born before his own parents. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see ya.